From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every... One of you, thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Uh, if you'd like to be part of the program, we would love to have you. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 271 2985 And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 1- 205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Charles Beery is our celebrity producer today. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Thursday, Father Brian Mullady. How are you? Just peachy, thank you. How about you? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic. You know, I was uh, participated in a in a Bible study uh, recently uh, that kind of had some materials from Dr. John Bergsma involved in it, and um, you know, we we all talk about and are familiar with the notion of being baptized priest, prophet, and king. Um, but but uh, Dr. Bergsma likes to throw spouse into the mix as well, and you're going to talk a little bit about that today, huh? Yes, well, I'm going to talk about the spouse of love, um, and especially as it's connected to Epiphany, because if you read the uh, Antiphon for the Canticle of Mary for the Feast of Epiphany, it says this, Three mysteries mark this holy day. Today the star leads the Magi to the infant Christ. Today water is changed into wine for the wedding feast. Today Christ wills to be baptized by John in the River Jordan to bring us salvation. The idea of a kind of spousal relationship between uh, man and God is a very old one. In fact, uh, I often point this out in the prophecy of Isaiah, which we read for the Easter Vigil. It begins by saying, your maker shall become your husband. And also in the famous exult at him for Easter, it says, O blessed night on which heaven is wedded to earth and man is reconciled with God. So the Feast of Epiphany is a kind of ongoing feast. As you know, it sort of ends the final experience of the Christmas season with the Feast of the Presentation. But the reason it's an ongoing mystery is because the manifestation of Christ entering into the death of our hearts, of our souls, and transforming us by his power is central to his being made known in the world. You may remember in the famous debates that took place around the Council of Nicaea and other councils, 
we're told that God became man so that man might become God. Now, obviously, we aren't changed into God. We're still finite. But the point is that grace is, well, we believe it's a change, a true interior change, in which we are enabled to know and love God in the Trinity itself, in the mystery of the Trinity itself, as God knows and loves himself. And that only this experience is capable of preparing us for the final happiness, which is heaven. Now in Epiphany, you have all three of those mysteries put together in relationship to that. So you have the whole beautiful notion of the wedding feast at Cana, which is first Christ's first miracle, really, is done in the context of a marriage. And remember, Jewish marriages lasted a long time. I mean, in the sense that the uh, feasting went on for days. And Christ wishes to save this poor couple in embarrassment at the intercession of his mother. And so, sort of outside the normal events, he changes water into wine, and we talk about that in the Mass, and we talk about by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who came, offered himself to share in our humanity. Obviously, the Incarnation is very caught up in this. Also, the Magi represent the um, intelligentsia who are also the scientists who come to worship at this mystery, but more than that, they bring wedding gifts. So at the um, manifestation of the star, they're brought first to Jerusalem, and then there's a further clarification of where the Messiah should be born through the Old Testament. Again, the people, God's chosen people, the spousal union of heaven and earth, which is at that time still only a people, becomes individualized for us, finally, in baptism. Now, uh, you remember all the wonderful things that happened at the baptism of our Lord. Remember, he doesn't need to be baptized. Even John says that. The Christ says, no, this is supposed to be the way it is for now, because he, he doesn't need grace. He's already got grace and more grace than anybody else because he's the person of the word. But he needs to touch the waters to approve a ritual of John, to approve the idea that physical means can communicate this grace to us, this change within us. And so when he touches the waters of the Jordan, when it touches his body, that's when the testimony of who he is is first made rather explicit. This is my beloved son. Listen to him as the heavens open and the spirit rests on him in the form of a dove. And notice this is also connected to the passion because John has very much said, this is the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And the famous idea of he must increase, but I must decrease. So the unworthiness of man to save himself is represented in John's baptism. At the same time, the desire to be healed from our unloving disobedience, where the first great rebellion against our spousal union occurred in the original sin, 
all these mysteries all kind of touch together and turn around the same uh, experiences in as recounted to us in the scriptures. So this baptism of the Lord, coupled with the wedding feast of Cana, another sacrament, by the way, and also um, the Magi adoring in our name at the crib, are central to what we understand as the Christian religion. It was kind of sad a number of years ago in the year 2000 because uh, I remember I heard about a meeting a religious order had where they said, well, you know, we're celebrating the birth of the unique mediator between God and man. And several of the priests at this meeting objected to that. And they said, how could Christ be the unique mediator? He was a man, not a woman. He lived in Israel, not in Rome. Uh, and uh, he obviously wasn't anything interesting about his life exactly because many people in the scripture realm tend to deny the metaphysical and therefore the miraculous in scripture. Well, I mean, whose birthday do you think they were celebrating? 2,000 years. I mean, it, was, it was so ironic and so silly. But that's what a lot of people believe today. And yet, this completely undercuts the spousal union of the soul with God, which should take place in us. So, uh, we do what Christ tells us, as Mary told the people at the wedding feast, through the sacraments and through the power that were offered by the incarnate Lord. We must also say, he must increase, but I must decrease. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. Give us a call. Grab one of these open phone lines. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hot off the presses from EWTN Publishing, Prayers of Desperation, a questioner's prayer for answers in our darkest moments by Bishop Robert Baker. Bishop Baker explains powerful ways to pray when facing the pain of abandonment, serious illness, addiction, loss of a loved one, or large-scale disaster. This easy-to-read prayer and meditation book includes a solid answer and guidance to questions of what God's plan is for your life, 
the spiritually intense avenues for human divine encounters that bring you God's healing, and much, much more. Prayers of Desperation, a questioner's prayer for answers in our darkest moments by Bishop Robert Baker, available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We got an email from Megan, and she wants to know, can you explain whether or not confessed sins are exposed to mankind during the general judgment? A lot of people are worried about that general judgment, Father. Uh, Yes. Well, actually, yes, I can. That's a... Uh, a very interesting question and should be very sobering for all of us because, you know, our Lord says what's hidden will be made plain. What's uh, secret will be shouted from the rooftops because in the general judgment, all of heaven and earth comes together and that's all the people that and lived before and Christ himself will pronounce shepherding the sheep from the goats based on their works, if you remember. And um, because of this, every secret thought of ours will be made known to the whole universe. Now, to the good, that will redound to make them happier, uh, or their betterment. To the wicked, that will confound them even more. And everybody will know if you've been a hypocrite or not, too and when and how, so you can't escape. I'm sorry. <laughs> it would be you nice. Can, you can run, se- but you can't hide. That's right. Secret sins. You may escape them being known here on earth. Everybody may exalt you here on earth. But what's really going on will be known at the general judgment. But it's it's fair to say that, that those who uh, find themselves in a position to be with our Lord for all eternity are in the moment not going to be troubled by the general judgment? Well, no. In fact, uh, let's say they've been scarlet sinners, someone like Augustine, for instance. The fact that his conversion is known to the whole world adds to his participation in happiness, you could say. Now, of course, he won't be happier than for seeing God, but still they redound to... Uh, the appreciation of his goodness, and as a result, to his love. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. You know, the Trinity is, there are, it it, it, to some degree is always going to be a mystery to us in this life. But Chris writes in, given Jesus is fully God and fully man, did he know everything that God knows? All right, well, that's also something in which theology has made distinctions for years. Uh, Jesus as man knew everything that was necessary to fulfill his mission of redemption. Obviously, there are certain things he would have to learn that wouldn't be absolutely necessary to that. Now, he would have been a particularly apt pupil. You know, one explanation would be enough. But uh, he had to learn, for example, Hebrew or Greek. Uh, 
He didn't know that by the fact that he was in the womb and spoke Greek. But uh, he did that by studying it. But he was a quick study. So uh, as to what God knows in eternity, no, Jesus wouldn't know that. For example, Aquinas says that he wouldn't have known all the possible worlds God could have created, but only as man, the one he actually created, because that's the one he came to redeem. So, in other words, the, the, the classic theology term for this is whatever Christ assumes when he becomes altogether man, he assumes economically. Now, that means, this is from a Greek word, really, it means he assumes as a part of his mission, which is to redeem us by perfect obedience in the face of death. 833-288-EWTN. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. We head now to Warrington, Pennsylvania. Joe is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania listening on Holy Spirit Radio. Joe, you're on with Father Milady. Good afternoon, Father, and God bless you for all that you do. Uh, I'm curious. I've just started to try to read the Bible from cover to cover. I'm an almost 80-year-old cradle Catholic, and I just now decided to do this. And uh, I've come across in Genesis 6-6 that causes me concern. Uh, It says that God regretted creating man. And later on in another part of of uh, of the Old Testament, I came across he regretted something else. I don't. I didn't make a note of that. Oh, I believe it's God, the flood. Yeah, I think it's the flood. Yeah. Uh-huh. Recipes all perfect. Yeah. Well, God regrets in the sense that He created us to be saved, uh, or maybe saves this is the word to use. He created us to be with Him in heaven, and He regretted the fact that we ourselves chose not to conform to the uh, requirements that were necessary for us to do that. And as a result, as a kind of natural consequence of that, we experience what's called the evil of punishment to atone for the evil of fault. And God certainly does want us to be punished, but as part of his divine justice and his divine intelligence, his truth, if you want to put it that way, it's a part of the process by which he made the world. Does that help, Joe? Well, I mean, he, he knew that we were going to sin because he knows everything. Yeah, but, the, so, but he uh, didn't cause us to sin. He didn't want us to sin. And he knew that we were going to sin because we're... Well, there's a, a nice question in Thomas Aquinas where... He said, would man have sinned if there hadn't been a devil? Because, you know, the devil suggests the terms of the sin. And he said, well, man could have stayed in the state of grace, but human beings are of such a character that if they hadn't been tempted, they probably could have found a means to mess up anyway. <laughs> so, because they, they we, we, we have this strange idea that we want to rule and it doesn't matter how good you are, everybody, uh, even the great saints, they're often tempted, as was our Lord in the desert, you know, change the stones into bread. Uh, 
just to show their goodness or their power. That's not what it's all about. I remember I know a lot of women who are married, and when they get a little impatient, they'll say, oh, I should have been a nun. And then she, they add, but I would have had to be the superior. <laughs> and I said, uh, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> You're supposed to enter to be humble, not to exalt yourself and run the place. And uh, we have a tendency where we want to run the place. And our egos are just so incredibly weird. Um, in, anybody that has any honesty at all knows that they're egotistical on certain occasions in certain ways in certain times. Even if, in other times, they would tell you this is stupid to be that way. Unfortunately, we have this tendency toward ourselves where we want to, well, what is it? Uh, Satan tempted Adam with the fact that he'd be the same as God. We want to reign. And it's true we're called to reign with heaven with Christ, but by surrendering ourselves, not by attacking the kingdom. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. 833-288-3986. Next up is Frank in the great state of New Mexico listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Frank, you're on with Father Milady. Yes, Father, I have a question. Uh, Paul says that we're not saved by the law and the prophets. Yeah, excuse me, it's uh, by law, but by the faith. But our Lord says that I've come to not destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Fulfill them. So, yes. So what is the difference in what Paul is saying versus law versus what our Lord is saying in the law? Well, there is no difference, except that we don't understand the terms as they're using them, because they're using them in a different sense. When Paul is talking about the law and the works, especially of the law, remember, I believe he says the works of the law don't save you, uh, he's talking about the fact that once Christ has come now, the so-called sacraments of the Old Testament mean nothing, and there's one in particular he's talking about, which is circumcision. Because he was dealing with the Judaizers who felt that in order to become a Christian you had to be circumcised, you had to submit yourself at least that much to the law, which I'm sure you could imagine was not an easy requirement for an adult to do. But um, the point is, you have to understand the difference between the Old and the New Testament. The Old Law is uh, like the figure that looks forward to the New Law, and the Old Law teaches what's right, remember. Christ is very clear about that. But the problem is it doesn't give you the ability to do it. So he's not saying, well, you shouldn't be moral people. That's not one jot or iota of the law will be changed until it all comes to effect. But he's talking about people who tend to reduce the law to only exterior works and especially the liturgical works of the temple and those kinds of things. And again, in the, you know, the church, in the sacraments, uh, we have as a part of our experience of the fulfillment of the law, the bl- sacramental order, which includes all those things like the church and the altar and all that stuff. But um, the Jews had a tendency 
to reduce it merely to external things, not the prophets. So the New Testament includes the Holy Spirit's presence in your soul, and that's what gives the fruit to the law. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Wide open phone lines for you on this beautiful Thursday. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Unfettered access to a living, breathing Dominican right here on EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Cameron writes in, Father, I have a mental illness, and I'm wondering what the church teaches about it. Are some mental illnesses unforgivable? Uh, Mental illness has nothing to do with forgiveness or not forgiveness. It's not a moral condition. It's an emotional condition. Um, It's tough in a way, but that's why when we teach the seminarians about confession, we have to give them the ability to try to recognize at least the difference between an emotional problem and a moral problem. One, something you're guilty for that you can control by your will and has to do with deliberate judgment. Uh, mental illness is usually a lack of order in your passions. And you can sit there and go to confession all you want, but it doesn't resolve that. It may resolve whatever guilt you may have before God for creating such a such a position like drug addiction. But it, it, and that would be in the initial action. But it certainly can't resolve for the lack of order in the passions. That's why counselors are important of some kind. And uh, most priests are not capable of doing that kind of counseling on that level. Once you reach that time, you have to know someone you trust you can refer the person to, or uh, there may be a referral service in your diocese. But it it's not an, a moral condition for the most part, very rarely. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We head next to the state of Nebraska. Marie is listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Marie, you're on with Father Brian. Thank you. Um, I've never heard anybody address this question, and I've wondered about it for some time, and I want to ask it. Since God created the entire universe, and we're learning more about different stars and planets, and could it, if there were a conscious being on any one of these other planets, would that planet also be a place where the original sin happened there, and then Jesus would have to be sent there to redeem them? I know. Well, all I can tell you is the original sin, remember, is an inaction. It's a sin of nature. And in order for you to inherit it, you have to be materially connected to Adam, at least in the sense of the Christian religion. 
So there's a question in St. Thomas where he says, if God were to create another human being from the dust of the earth, in other words, there'd be no sexual connection with other human beings, would that person inherit original sin? And he said, no, because it's the material connection through um, the sharing of life that's the means by which original sin is transmitted, although even the catechism admits it's a mystery how it's um, transmitted exactly. Uh, but you know, it's very interesting, for example, the idea of the purification of a woman and the birth of a child in the Old Testament. There's two reasons for it. One is a negative one and one is a positive one. She's participated in the bringing forth of life by which original sin is transmitted. So she has to be purified from that. But there's a more positive reason, which is that she's participated also in a kind of divine action because she's participated in a holy action by which a new life is made in the image and likeness of God. And so I don't know if you're familiar with this terminology, but in the Mass, when we finish uh, communion, and we have to purify the chalice, we talk about purification of vessels. Why does it need to be purified? Because it's participated in a divine and holy act, an act that touches eternity, and so to be returned to the cupboard for ordinary use, it has to um, be reduced from this marvelous entry into the eternal that it was experienced in the Mass. So the one is negative and the one is positive. And so I really don't know the answer to the other planet thing, frankly. And uh, I'm puzzled about that too a bit. Of course, before they decide to do all this UFO research, and who knows what the UFOs are, apparently the experience the pilots have of them is real. But what it means is what kind of a thing it could be. No one's exactly sure of that. But um, we, I had a question in seminary about the salvation of the Martians. <laughs> and so I said, don't worry about it. They don't exist. So you don't know if you, I don't know if you much about seminarians, but they have a very strange sense of humor. And so after I said that, I kept getting these cartoons under my door. How do you like that guy? He says, we don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> the Martians. <laughs> what are we going to do? Let's punish him. What shall we do? Let's take him to the Franciscan School of Theology and shove Franciscanism <laughs> down his throat. And then, I, then, and then uh, they say, wait a minute, look out, he's got a weapon. And so I hold up the Suba and all the Martians fall down of the quietness of <laughs> typically funny things. But no, I really, the question of the salvation of the Martians it, it wouldn't be possible for him to inherit the original sin as we have described it to us in our uh, scriptures. Well, if you figure it out, Father, you call Marie. And Marie, if you figure it out, you call Father Brian. And then you two can help each other along <laughs> <Yeah>. the way. <laughs> yes, yes. Thanks, Marie. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833 833-288- Three nine eight six. Ian writes in. My daughter has endometriosis, which has damaged her fallopian tubes. 
She's been told her option is to do in vitro if she wants to continue having children. She is struggling with the church's stance on it and not being able to have more children without it. Are there any special circumstances that in vitro is permissible? Um, I'll just briefly answer your question by saying there aren't any. Because the child has to be conceived in an act of love of two human beings. And once we surrender on this sort of thing, we make children like products in test tubes. As you know, in in vitro fertilization, some of the, um, what would they call it, zygotes or fertilized eggs, they either have to be destroyed, which is abortion, or they're sitting in cryogenesis, you know, they're frozen forever, and no one knows what to do with them. Because human life just can't be reducible to, I want a child, therefore it justifies everything. Uh, it's, It's got to be, a person has to recognize the fact that these things are gifts from God. And before we could control all the factors biologically regarding them, I know it's tempting because we can control lots of diseases doing this. Although, I'm, in light of our COVID experiences with vaccination, I'm beginning to question this more and more. But we can't just uh, do what we want. You know, art imitates nature. And as every good person knows who's a physician, if there's nothing in nature left, that art can uh, use to bring about the healing of the body, you're you're gone. So uh, they have to use what's present there, something. On some level, they have to be able to find something that nature already has that can be used to promote healing. And a similar thing would be true with the idea of having a child. If the doctors can help us with that in a moral means, a human means, that's wonderful. Many women have been helped in such ways. But if it becomes a calculus just to, you know, um, to accomplish the end, whatever the means, in other words, conception, outside of the context of uh, the loving act of marriage, then that is not helpful, even though you might actually succeed in doing it. I've had other people who had similar difficulties. And one, I said, well, can't you adopt a child? Well, not in our present situation. They won't let us. Well, look, it's terrible to be childless in some ways, but I'm kind of taken aback sometimes today by the fact that it seems in our present society, people that want children can't have them. People that don't want children are trying to avoid them. <laughs> so, uh, the, the child is a gift from God, and it needs to be looked upon under that context, not something we control like a car or a mechanical device. Um, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Dan wants to know, can you explain the verse in Matthew where it states that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven? Yes, I think I can. 
First of all, that's a Semitic exaggeration. In the manner in which people express themselves often in the Middle East, they use an exaggerated expression in order to teach a certain truth or something like that. Now, obviously it's impossible for a camel to pass through the eyes of a needle. Christ doesn't think rich people can't be saved. After all, people like Zacchaeus converted, remember? Surrendered, what, fourfold what he was supposed to surrender? But riches have this very peculiar psychology about them. That many of us that have them tend to put our security in them. So the more we have, the more we want, and the more we have, the less we secure we are in its possession. I used to give talks about this attitude in my um, explanations of the vows to the religious in my order about poverty. The problem with poverty isn't the money. The problem with poverty is the desire to dominate using it. So there's a famous old fairy tale, The Fisherman's Wife of Grimm's Fairy Tales, in which a fisherman caught a fish, and the fish said he was an enchanted prince, and if the fisherman would just grant him, uh, turn him loose, he granted him whatever his heart desired. Well, the fisherman didn't want anything. He went home. His wife was not amused. She said, look at this dump we live in. You go back to that ocean and tell the fish I want a nice house. Well, every time she gets what she wants, she's satisfied with it for a shorter period of time. So then she likes the house, but then she wants a mansion, the mansion, a castle, the castle, that pretty soon power to keep what she's got. So she wants to do the mayor, the governor, the king, the emperor, and finally the pope. Now, when she becomes the pope, <laughs> the fairy tale says that she spent a restless night tossing and turning. And she told her husband, go and tell the fish it's still not enough because I could have everything I have received, gotten, taken from me by a natural disaster, like an earthquake or a tornado. Go and tell the fish I can't be happy until I can control nature. Go and tell the fish I want to be God. Now that's the attitude that Jesus is condemning. Uh, the uh, concupiscence, which is our moral weakness we suffer as a result of the original sin, is primarily expressed not in the money or even, for example, in sexual life, in lascivious conduct. It's Remember, all sexual sins really entail the desire to dominate to use another person's ego and take their will and freedom to aggrandize your own. So it's all reduced to the right to dominate, which is, of course, found primarily, finally, in the sin of pride. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Be sure, uh, be sure to join Tracy Sable tonight for EWTN News Nightly. You can uh, view it or listen to it 9 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio and Television. 
Uh, Nick wants to know, how do I know, this is, this is good for a Thomistic uh, philosopher to answer, how do I know evil is the absence of good rather than good being the absence of evil? Well, first of all, because there's no such thing as an absolute evil, because absolute evil wouldn't be a thing. <laughs> you know, since uh, and and the same, just compare it to normal everyday evil. Many people would think that lameness. Uh, I'm having a trouble, more and more trouble with my legs as I get older, and you know your knees and your ankles, and it makes you unable to walk properly, and sometimes even to have your center of gravity properly oriented. And as a result, I walk very slowly. Now, obviously, God didn't make my legs to inch along, you know, to take somewhat baby steps and have to watch every obstacle. But I have to do that because my legs have deteriorated a bit. Now, the fact that that's true demonstrates that healthy limbs would allow me total freedom of movement, but uh, sick limbs or limbs that aren't perfectly formed or they're old they're so old they're just you know, they won't do what you want them to do totally they impair the ability to walk which is the reason legs exist to begin with so obviously it's the lack present in the thing um, I don't quite understand the way to the second part of the question why absolute evil is the, you know lesser good or something but um, there, good is perfection. That's the way we use the term. And what things were made to be, if they act the way they're made to be, they're good. If they don't, that's what we consider to be physical evil. Now, there is a difference between physical evil and moral evil. The difference is that physical evil, you have a lack in the form, like let's say your tibia is curved or your... Um, hip is out of whack because of age or something, that leads to lack in action so that you can't act the way your body was created to be. Moral evil is the other way around. Evil of act, in this case loving something disordinately, causes evil of uh, will, evil of form, because your will isn't totally formed properly. And of course, if you have enough evils of act and enough lack of formation of the will, eventually you begin to alter your judgments about what's good or evil, and that's when you become a wicked person. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Jason in the great state of Washington, listening on iHeartRadio. Jason, you're on with Father Brian Malady. Hi, Father. How are you doing? Okay. Um, Father, I had a question about John 6 um, and the disciples that were following Jesus that didn't walk away. Um, how did they understand the uh, uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Uh, at that time, seems how uh, there was no uh, Eucharist at that time. Oh, uh, well, in the same way we understand it now. Uh, in fact, what Jesus is questioned about it, if you remember, he really doesn't f deny or mitigate anything he said, but the 
he uses different verbs, and at least in the Greek texts of the New Testament, those verbs are even more graphic. They literally chew on your, your body. So when the Eucharist is instituted, uh, we have to enter deeply into the mystery of Christ through um, receiving his body and blood. The discourse on the bread of life, though, is placed where it is. I believe it's because of the miracle of John and uh, recounts of the multiplication of the loaves. But remember, in John's gospel, that's not the synoptics. Things are not placed necessarily chronologically. Sometimes they're placed there for the sake of the effect of the teaching. God bless you. We appreciate, Jason, the phone call. We've got a follow-up uh, email that came in to uh, a question we had earlier in the program. Rose wants to know if children born through in vitro have souls. Of course they have souls. Children are children. They're the result of the union of the the sperm and the ovum. Well, in this case, the sperm is harvested, and uh, they take their natural course, just like every other conception, human conception does. So, of course, they have souls. Um, Travis wants to know, <laughs> here's a little forgiveness question for you, why did Jesus heal the soldier's ear if Jesus knew the soldier was going to kill him? <laughs> well, first of all, because Christ is most merciful, uh, he obviously uh, was merciful on those who were going to kill him. And remember, he himself says, uh, he handed you over to me as the greater sin. So even the people who, obviously this soldier, must have been a rather minor official <laughs> in the people that came to arrest him. <clears throat> and uh, who knows what happened to him. He could have been like Dismas remember, who converted um, basically at the hour of his death on the cross and admitted that he deserved death. So who knows if he was one of the ones that was going to kill him or not. And we've got another follow-up email to our in vitro conversation earlier. Uh, wow. Bob, Bobby wants to know, if and this is actually a, a pretty interesting question, if the Catholic Church doesn't accept in vitro because it's not the normal way of conceiving, how does that square with Mary's conception of Jesus? Well, first of all, I didn't say because it's not the normal way of conceiving. I said it has to result from an act of love, and not just one, and it has to be within the context of an act of love, not have one thing removed and another thing removed and just put it together artificially. Uh, Remember, uh, Mary's conception wasn't like that. She actually had a way of conceiving uh, in her body of an act of love with God, and the means of that conception was the, um, what we, in our case would have been human semen, in her case was the Holy Spirit, but it took place in her body. Remember, there's an ancient heresy that maintains, somewhat like in vitro fertilization, that Christ was already brought to her body, formed as a child. And so uh, there'll be, there are icons in some of the Eastern churches that were condemned where the angel Gabriel is coming down with an already formed child and he just puts it in Mary's womb. And because these early Christians thought that this was d dirty, flesh, ugh, flesh bad, ugh, get rid of flesh, they, they basically said that 
Christ passed through Mary's womb like a water through a channel. In other words, he took something from her. Well, that's what the article in our creed is totally against, where it says he was conceived by the Holy Spirit from from the Virgin Mary, because he took flesh from her. So it's a totally different idea. Uh, it's not like uh, well, the test tube conception of God as man, and then we're sort of put him back in Mary's womb to <laughs> to somehow. Well, uh, I guess in vitro fertilization, the child does take something from the mother, obviously. But um, in the early Christian's case, they would have thought of it as already formed. And uh, in, in other words, Mary wouldn't just do gestation. And we ha I know we as humans have this this struggle with what appears to be the tension between God's omniscience and our own free will. And Angela asks, was Lucifer assigned his role by God, where God is all-knowing, must have known what his choice would be, right? Well, Luther wasn't assigned his role by God exactly. As you remember, he was created as the highest of the angels. But then they had that initial testing where for angels, their first choice ends their pilgrimage to God as death ends ours. So in his first choice, Luther, uh, Lucifer chose himself. So all God did was say, fine, you want yourself? That's what you get. Well, then he's so lonely and so disturbed and so it's prideful, he wants everybody to be like him. Now, Father, would you God. leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Back at it again tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan on EWTN's Open Line Friday. Until then, God bless.